Let's pray with me, please. Lord, this morning, it's it's our privilege and our great joy to turn to the Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for the words that we've sung this morning. May we take them to heart. As we sing about you, as we sing to you, as we hear this morning from your word, Lord, change our hearts. Make us more like you. Lord, whether we know it or not, that's what we need most is simply to be made more like you. So, Lord, in me and in all the folks here, Lord, do that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I I was thinking this week, as I was looking over the Scripture and Paul's encounter with Jesus, we'll see in Acts chapter 9, I was curious, it kind of made me curious, who's met some very famous and important people? Um, I'm going to start over here, and we're going to kind of go around. Because I'm going to start with the Honorable Eddie Clyde Hale, our great magistrate here in East Callaway County, world-renowned magistrate in Callaway County. Who's the most famous and important person you've ever met? Who is it? Jesus Christ. All right, I like that. See, I didn't set him up for that. That's good. Then after that, who else? The governor. You've you've met multiple governors now. Yeah. All right. All right. Who else? Who's had somebody? that you've met before, maybe not, I don't know if we can top that, I can't top that, that you've met somebody important, yes? Joby Hall. Joby Hall. Man. Won a national championship once upon a time in 1978, beating Duke, I believe, as a matter of fact. Kentucky can beat Duke. They they did it in 1978. That was was cold, I'm sorry. That was for your husband, though. That's right. Hey, it's okay. It's all good. Louisville beat Duke in 86. How about that? We can all beat them. All right. That's good. Joe B. Hall. Anybody else? Who else have you met that said, yes, ma'am? Rick Patino. There you go. All right. We'll take that one. All right. That's right. That's it. Yes, ma'am. President Jimmy Carter. How about that? Really? When did you meet President Carter? Really? So after he left office, was he doing some touring or something? Wow. That's pretty neat. All right. So, okay, well, we, we got you one beat now. Sorry. <clears throat> Anybody else? Some important, famous famous people. Anybody? Yes, sir. Ronald Reagan. How about that? Neat. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yes, sir. Really? You met Desmond Tutu. Wow. We got some world figures here. Yes. Brandon Phillips. All right. He's the second baseman for the Reds, by the way. <clears throat> He incited a riot in St. Louis one time. I'm not sure that's real popular around here. <clears throat> uh, that's good. We've got a hand up here. Yeah. Colin Powell. Wow. That's pretty neat. Yes, sir. Don Mattingly. You met Don Mattingly? That's pretty cool. You know, we've, I guarantee you that if we were to go around and talk with everybody, that we've met some folks and we could connect the dots and make the world kind of small. We're just a couple of steps away from everybody. But it's interesting how all those meetings took place. Maybe it was a chance meeting. I was real close once to President George H.W. Bush. I was at the the Ryder Cup golf uh, tournament in uh, Louisville one time the, at Valhalla, and he was riding in a cart right there. I was as close as I got. He, he said, hey, Brad, how you doing? I was, you know, I was... <laughs> You know, I was like, man, I don't have time. For, sorry, you know, I'm trying to watch golf, buddy. Um, you know, so, but we've we've met, we've met, or been close to some some famous people. But here's the thing about all those meetings: I would venture to say 
that for the most part, the folks that we've mentioned, it was sort of a one-time meeting, maybe just kind of in passing, maybe in a receiving line, maybe it was just, oh my goodness, there's that person, I'm going to say hello to them. Maybe you took a picture with them or something like that, I don't know. But it's unlikely that that meeting has continued to impact your life. It probably has not transformed your life in any way. It was probably something that you say, you know, that was kind of neat. That was cool to meet that person. You know what? Hey, I got to tell everybody in church today. I met that person. And that's kind of neat, but it rarely changes our lives when we meet somebody who's important or famous. And I think the main reason behind that is not because we don't necessarily want it to change our lives. Listen, if we're meeting somebody famous, we kind of like, hey, you know, I'd like to get in good with that person. Maybe, maybe one of these days they'll do something for me. But those people rarely have transformation in mind when they're shaking your hand. All they're doing is shaking another hand in line. They're saying hello to another person, taking another obligatory picture. That's just what they're doing. Today, what we're going to look at is the one important person that Eddie Clyde mentioned from the get-go, whose every intention is to transform our lives. Not just to say that we've met him, Not just to say that, well, you know, once upon a time I thought about this person, I I ran into him, or you know what, I knew something about him. Jesus has as his express purpose to transform our lives. And once you meet Jesus, you can't and you never will be the same. Today's sermon, I really hope, will will help us in a couple of ways. Maybe you're a person... Who, who maybe has kind of been playing along with Christianity. And, and I understand how that goes. I've seen people do that. And you just kind of play along because in our culture, even here still in Callaway County, it, it's still very accepted and sort of expected almost that you'll operate as a Christian person. So maybe you've kind of been playing along. And I really hope today that you come face to face with the need for heart transformation, to be truly transformed. <clears throat> and I think also maybe there's some folks who from time to time struggle with doubts about your salvation. And you say, well, I, man, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, this is, you know, if people at church knew what I did and thought and said when I'm not sitting in the pew keeping my mouth shut so nobody knows me, you know, if, if they knew all those things about me, I don't know if they would, if they would like me. I don't know if they would think I'm much of a Christian. I've heard people say before, well, I'm not operating much like a Christian. Maybe that causes some doubts for you. Maybe you say, well, how can I really, really know? And maybe today will help you, and maybe you'll be able to pass it along to someone else. Because when you meet Jesus, you'll never be the same. To walk in the way of the Master is to truly be transformed. The purpose for meeting Jesus, I'll just tell you this, is not so that your life can be made more comfortable. Now, a lot of times you've been told, look, if you'll just give your life to Jesus, man, he'll take care of all your problems. All your problems will go away. That's garbage. You know that as well as I do. It's garbage. You met Jesus and your problems stayed right with you, didn't they? Now, you were different. You were transformed, but your problems, maybe they didn't go away. So the purpose for Jesus coming into your life is not for things to get more comfortable or just to get a boost or for you to be seen as a nice person or a good citizen, not to give you some advantage in this world. The purpose in meeting Jesus, as we'll see in the life of Saul, who we now know as the Apostle Paul, is to transform every aspect of your life, every single part of it, to transform your mind, how you think and how you make decisions. You realize that it's not just, well, yeah, I kind of have this faith that, you know, I believe in Jesus, and yeah, I got saved on whatever date and whatever year, and then I was baptized, and you know, well, kind of after that, I just kind of kept doing my thing, and no, it's to transform everything, 
how you think, how you feel, what you decide to do, and so on. And that's the goal of Jesus, to transform every part of you. We're going to finish up our series here in a couple of weeks called The Way of the Master. And before we do, I want us to look this morning at Acts chapter 9. And it was brought to my attention that I left in the sermon title from last week on your notes. I promise you this is a new one. I promise. I was told that uh, if it were not a new one, a refund would be demanded. And I said, all right, we'll get you. I got you a new one. So, uh, so it is new. I simply made an oversight there. But you'll see the scripture. Acts chapter 9 uh, is there. And um, we're going to look at this morning the, at the transformation of a guy who originally in the scripture is known as Saul. And so I'll use Saul and Paul kind of interchangeably this morning as I'm talking about him. Just understand it's the same guy. He later became known as the Apostle Paul. But when we meet him this morning in Acts chapter 9, he will be known in the scripture as Saul. And there is no one who more drastically and obviously shows what meeting Jesus can and will do in our lives than this guy. And for Saul, there was nothing casual about his Christianity. Nothing. It was much more than that. And we're going to look this morning at the first time that he met Jesus, what happened to him then, how it changed his life, and how it continued, even as we'll see through some of his writings, to transform his life from that point forward. So I want you to turn with me, Acts chapter 9. We're going to look here at several verses and really try to get a, a grasp on what is the means and what is the evidence of transformation in our lives. And by means, I mean, how does Jesus do it? And then how is it displayed? How can we really know that our lives have been transformed? What does he use and how can we know? What does God use in our lives to bring transformation? How do we know we're in the process of being transformed and so on? So Acts chapter 9, I want you to look first at verses 1 and 2. Uh, This is right after, by the way, uh, there's a man named Stephen who was martyred. He was killed for his faith in Jesus. And right after this is where we pick up the story. Meanwhile, it says, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, this is where this whole, whole series title came from, The Way of the Master. That's one of the ways they were known is folks according to the way. So you look here, after this, Saul, who is hardened in his heart against Jesus, was still breathing out threats and murder. Before Saul met Jesus, he was an enemy of God, an enemy of the way of Jesus. And it's kind of hard for us to think in terms like that about people. I don't know about you, but I kind of like to think and hope and wish that people are just kind of good when they do something bad. You know what? That's kind of an anomaly. That was just unusual. But unfortunately... Although we like to think of people as basically good, the scripture leaves us no room to think of people as basically good. We're not basically good, and maybe one day we make a decision to be bad, and then, okay, our our destiny is swayed. We are born, the Bible tells us, not only with a sinful nature, but that sinful nature will lead us to do sinful things. So it's not just what we do, but it's who we are that's the problem, and that's what Paul ran into. He, though, was a guy that we might have looked at at first and thought, you know, he's a pretty good guy. If you'd been a Jewish person back then who had not yet converted to Christianity, you'd have thought Paul was something. He followed all the Old Testament laws. He was very well respected in the Jewish community. He was very, very smart. And he would have appeared to be anything but a man on the road to hell, which is exactly what he was. He would have appeared to be a great religious man, a great religious leader. And unfortunately, he was on the road Not just to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, but his soul was on the road to hell. 
And the truth is, as I pick out these two verses just to start with, is that that's what we all are without Jesus. I never want to take for granted, and I, I, I do this sometimes, and, it, and I get done with a sermon, and then I think, man, I took for granted that everybody in there probably knows Jesus. And I, I don't want to accuse anybody. I told some folks earlier, I can't judge your soul, and I'm not going to try to. But I just want you to know that apart from Jesus, being a good person is just being a good person on the road to an eternal hell. And I don't say that with any threat. I just, there's, that's what the scripture tells us. We're not just good people who do a few things that aren't so good. Our kids, unfortunately, as much as we love them, I think we recognize when we're honest that they're not born neutral and then just decide at some point to be good or bad. They're born with sinful natures. I would imagine that those of you that have worked in the nursery here at church would say, yep, they, they sure are. I love them. But man, they are. Parents, if you, you know, if you've got young kids still, you just see it early on, don't you? And then they become teenagers. I'm about to have a teenager. And it seems like they just want to do that even more. I told Lucy the other day, I said, this is off the subject. I said, Lucy, the world just gets dumber. I'm just going to tell you, it just gets dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber as you get older. Doesn't get any better. Just gets dumber. They're not born neutral. You know, the people in our community, we pray for our community. We want to be a light, as Andrew prayed. We want to be a light in our community. We understand that the people in our community, that apart from Jesus, they're not just good folks and good neighbors and good farmers and folks we love and care about and look after and all that. Apart from Jesus, they are dying and going to hell. And I don't say that with any, again, any kind of threat, just with a sense of urgency, because unless you come to the point of realizing that apart from Jesus, you, just like Saul, are a lost sinner, an enemy of God. Unless you come to that point, you can't move forward with Jesus. So maybe this morning, as I said, this is a sermon that might penetrate the heart of someone who's just kind of been playing along. And maybe today, for the first time, you just realize, you know what? <laughs> That's who I am. I may not be out there actively trying to destroy Christianity, but I'm a sinner lost apart from Jesus Christ. And that's where I always start, by the way, when I talk with children about salvation. Parents will come and say, my, my child is interested in being baptized. We've talked about it and, and so on. And okay, well, that's, that's great. Let's talk about it. I always meet with them ahead of time and sit down with the child. And I make the child answer the questions rather than the parents answering for them. And the kids are kind of intimidated. And they sit in my office with like 500 books sitting around them. And, you know, I, it's kind of intimidating. I don't know where else to meet. But, um, but I always ask them, okay, tell me, tell me what, is, what is sin? And tell me, who is Jesus? And, and tell me, what's the problem with sin? And why did Jesus have to die? And, and I just ask them those questions because I want them to come to a realization that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, that their sin will kill them. And it will destroy them for all eternity. And I want them to understand that until they can cognitively grasp that, then I won't move forward with baptizing them. I won't move forward with confirming, in a sense, that we are affirming that, you. yes, you are a believer in Jesus Christ by celebrating with you in your, in your public baptism. I won't move forward with that until I'm convinced that they have a cognitive understanding. And I just want us to have the same thing. Because those aren't questions just for kids. So there's Saul on the road, breathing out threats, breathing out murder. He's out to get all the people associated with Jesus. And then verse 3. As he was travel, as he traveled, he was nearing Damascus, and a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I'll be honest with you, my salvation experience wasn't anything like that. 
I didn't see any flashing lights from heaven. I heard no audible voices. I did not fall to the ground, nor was I made blind for a few days. That was not my salvation experience. I doubt it was yours. Saul had a very unique, external at least, salvation experience. Jesus interrupts him, shows up in the form of what in the Old Testament is called the Shekinah glory of God. It's that huge bright light that nobody can stand in front of. The Bible tells us no one has seen nor anyone can see God because it will kill you because of his absolute perfect glory. And Paul experiences a flash of that. And in that moment, he falls to his knees and he is spoken to by Jesus as Jesus interrupts his life. My salvation experience was not like that. No bright lights, no voice from heaven, not really worth writing down in Scripture is some story to tell. But the more that I think about it, my salvation experience was exactly like that. It it was exactly like what Paul experienced. Because it was equally miraculous. Because even as an eight-year-old kid, as I recognized my sinful, broken state before Jesus... I needed a miracle because I couldn't save myself. I needed an absolute miraculous healing in my life from God. I needed to be changed from being a sinner to being a saint of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happened to me in 1985. My salvation experience wasn't exactly like this, but it was everything like this because it's equally worth celebrating. The Bible tells us essentially that the angels do a little dance in heaven every time someone comes to know the Lord. And my salvation experience, though it wasn't accompanied by the audible voice of God, it was equally life-changing. Because I was at that moment changed from being someone with a sinful nature, broken and on the way to hell, to someone being made brand new in Jesus Christ as an eight-year-old child. And so this morning, you may have a similar salvation story as mine. Yours may be just like Paul's. Man, God literally knocked me down. (laughs) He changed my life from going this direction to absolutely going this direction. But I'll tell you this, every salvation story is miraculous. Every single story is worth celebrating. And every single salvation story is life-changing. There's nothing routine about someone being saved for all eternity. And that's what Paul experienced. And this is where his journey began. And we begin to see the first means and evidence of God's transformation in his life. And the first word I want to give you this morning is the word submission. In Acts chapter 9 verse 5, Paul there on the ground having been essentially blinded, knocked down, he says to Jesus, who are you, Lord? Now the word Lord there is not... Yahweh, it simply means sir. It simply is a title of respect. But there's the beginning for Paul of his submission before the Lord. And it would be this submission that Jesus would use in his life to transform him and also give evidence that Paul truly had been changed. He was on the ground broken. And Jesus speaks to him, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And that's when Saul's Saul's faith journey began. Because all along he thought the disciples were making it up. There's no way he said that the Messiah could have been murdered, could have died. And now he knows Jesus, not only was he killed, but now he's alive. And so he proved who he said he was. And that's where his transformation truly begins, is at the moment that he submits himself to Jesus. And this morning, if you want your life to be changed, and I'm not talking about your circumstances, but if you want to feel and think and do differently, then it begins with submission. 
It's not a real popular thing. Most folks will tell you, well, it begins with kind of pulling yourself up and go figure it out and plan better and do better and try harder. The Scripture is obvious, and it says it over and over, that the key to growth in Jesus Christ begins with submission. You've got to come to the end of yourself and surrender. I surrender all. I submit. It's as if you were a wrestler and you got pinned to the mat and you say, I'm done, I tap out, that's enough. And Lord Jesus, this morning, I'm done and I can't do it anymore. And that's where transformation starts. I wonder this morning, is there something in your life, an area that immediately comes to mind and you say, you know, I, yeah, these other areas are submitted, but not my finances, not my thought life, not my work life, not my family life. Lord, you know these areas. Lord, there's something I don't want anybody to know about. That area is not submitted to you. You'll never have true transformation in your life until you come to the point where you submit. And then that's where also transformation is seen. It's evidenced. Because if you show me a stubborn, obstinate, self-focused Christian who refuses to give in to the Lord on any area, in any area of his or her life, then I'll show you someone who probably doesn't really know Jesus. And again, I don't mean that to say question everybody's salvation, but there is a transformation. We go from people who are unwilling to submit to being willing to submit all the time. Paul, in his later letters, would simply describe himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. He went from someone trying to destroy the way of Jesus to following it himself. The second word I want to give you this morning and the means and the evidence of transformation is the word obedience. Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. Jesus said in verse 5, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Jesus says, here's what you're to do. You're to get up, and you're to go, and you'll find out then your next instructions. And what did Saul do? He got up, and he started down the road. It would be nice... It would be nice if we knew every single step that the Lord was going to have us take. You ever prayed like that? Lord, if you just show me, I'll do it. <laughs> I promise. Or you just make it very clear. Lord, all I want to know is exactly what I'm supposed to do. And Jesus told Saul, get up, start walking down the road, and I'll show you what you're to do. When? I'll show you what you are to do. Well, what do you mean? I'll show you what you are to do. So often in my life, I struggle with obedience because it's not always clear that, okay, this is exactly, it's like that needle in the haystack God's will thing. And I wonder if so many times the Lord said, look, I revealed myself in Scripture. I gave you a whole book to let you know what I'm about, what I want you to be about. Start walking down the road and just simply obey me and I'll show you what next to do. There's evidence of transformation when you begin to obey the Word of God. There's no such thing as a Christian who refuses to obey the Word of God. Refuses adamantly. I will not. And consistently, over time, proves over and over, and I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not. That's evidence of a person who has not been transformed by the power of God. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. That's not what I'm talking about. We all still sin, but I'm talking about a change of heart. I don't always obey, but I'm convicted when I don't. I confess it, and then I choose to obey again, because as a believer in Jesus, the, the most uncomfortable thing I do is disobey the Word of God. 
It's the most uncomfortable thing in my life is to disobey the Word of God. Am I saying that because I'm perfect? No, I'm saying that because I've been changed by the power of God. i got a new nature, and I want now to obey God. Do I always do it? No. Paul said in Romans 7, some of the time I do what I don't want to do, and a lot of times I don't do what I do want to do. He's confused, it seems, but all he's saying is, you know what? I'm not perfect. But since I've met Jesus, I'm different. Obedience is evidence and the means through which I begin to know Jesus more. Paul talked about it in the Romans chapter 6, and he said, so, so because of grace, should we just go on sinning and sinning and sinning? He said, no, that's ridiculous. Because you've come to know the truth, put sin away from you. Obey because you know the truth. It's both and when it comes to grace and obedience. There are some who would teach that because of grace, it doesn't matter what you do. Because God's grace covers it. And I fully believe that. I fully believe that there is nothing you can do that will remove God's grace from you, His love from you. But I also believe that once you've experienced God's grace, now you will want to be obedient to Jesus Christ. It's both and. It's one, then the other. It's grace followed by obedience. Paul's life was transformed through his obedience. And being and being obedient, it was obvious that his life had been transformed. Thirdly, Jesus in Paul's life used as the means and evidence of transformation the word endurance. Look at verse 10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up and go to the street called Straight. And the Lord said to him, To the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Isn't it interesting? He said, Get up, start walking to Damascus, and I'll show you what's next. And guess what's next? Suffering. You know, if I, if, if I... If I wanted to disprove the scripture, I'd have trouble with stuff like this. Because if I wanted to disprove the scripture, I'd say, well, you know, God just, he promises that everything's going to be perfect for his followers, and then it's not. Well, God's lying to you. He just promised that everything was going to be great. I mean, if you just give your life to him, it's all going to be wonderful. And then, you know what? It's not, so he's lying. What does he say from the get-go in Paul's life? I must show him how much he must suffer. Is this payback for what Paul had done? No. This is how God would use him, shape him, mold him, and reveal himself in and through Paul is through Paul's suffering and his endurance because of it. I'll just tell you this. The longer that I live and the more that I look around in our world today, I realize the words, Lord, the Lord's words here have not changed. They may be different and we may not be called exactly to the same position that Paul is called, but as Christians, it is not a life always of comfort. It involves suffering. There is something to give up. There is something to endure. Paul would write about it, 2 Corinthians, if you want to flip there real quick, I'll, I'll read it to you. You can just write down the reference if you'd like. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 
Paul says this in verse 3, We give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone, so that the ministry will not be blamed. But as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything, by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, sincere love, the message of truth, the power of God, through weapons of righteousness on the, on the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying and look we live, as being dis- uh, disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet also rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul said, you know what, I've experienced all that stuff. And he gets to the end, he says, I have nothing, but I've got everything. Paul learned about Jesus through his suffering and through his endurance. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, just flip over just a little bit. Verse 7. He says, therefore, so I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. We really don't know exactly what that was. But something kept bugging Paul, whether it was physical, emotional, mental, whatever, spiritual. He says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that it, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you want to get to know the Lord more, then give yourself to him in weakness in the middle of what you need to endure. We can muscle up and we can, all right, I'm going to make it through. And yet the greatest Christian missionary of all time, maybe someone who understood Jesus more than anybody else in history says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. That's when I'm able to endure, when I finally admit my weakness and I get to the point where I can't do it anymore. James would sum it up this way. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, talking about how the Lord uses those times of testing. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. There is something about endurance and the testing of our faith that the Lord uses to bring about in us something that could not otherwise be there. And then fourthly and finally, the means and the evidence of transformation includes the word community. It's interesting that Paul didn't do this on his own. If you look back in chapter 9 of Acts... He first is sent to a man named Ananias. And then in verse 20, he's sent to some other disciples. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. But all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on this name? And then he came here for the purpose of taking his prisoners to the chief priest. But Saul grew more capable and, by, and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. And then still more people that he was around. Verse 26, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. I would be too, just by the way. Uh, this guy, he's got authority. He's got some papers from people in charge that says he can arrest you and cut off your head. Uh, but now he says he's a Christian and he wants to kind of be your buddy. Uh, right. 
That's exactly the way I would have handled it. Um, is he a spy? What's, is he trying to get in good with us? You ever, you ever seen somebody like that? You know what I'm talking about. And yet over time, even though at first they weren't sure, look what happens in the community of faith. Verse 27, Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. It took one person to hear his story, to hear his conversion, and bring him into the community of faith so that he could grow, so that he could learn, and he could be made more effective. Paul would go on to write about the importance of the Christian community in several of his letters. He talks about the body of Christ. He talks about how we build one another up. He talks about how we're all important and we all work together. We're members of one another. Let me just say this. If you want to grow as a Christian, and I hear this from time to time from people, they come to me and say, look, what can I read? What can I study? Where should I start? I would like to grow more as a Christian. I I can give you no better advice than to get around other people who also want to grow as Christians and live in Christian community. I don't mean live here at the church or go join a convent. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is get involved in the lives of people who are tracking the same way. Because the truth be told, when we talk about young people and say, well, they just ran with the wrong crowd... Some of that's true, isn't it? Now, they're responsible for their own actions, but in some ways, we are who we run with. You want to be a stronger, more faith-filled, spirit-filled Christian, then I would encourage you to get around other Christians who want to do that as well. As Paul did that, it showed evidence that, you know what, he's got a new family. These are the people now I want to associate with. Look around, because this is your family. We've got some oddballs. We've got some, some, you know, some strange folks, but that's all right. I'm probably one of them. This is your new family. And as Paul did, we join with the new faith family. It gives us evidence and security in our salvation. Transformation is what Jesus wants to bring. It's the way of the master. And like Paul, once you meet Jesus, as he would write in 2 Corinthians 5, all things are new. You'll never be the same. So I wonder today, what part of this is for you? Which part? Is it is it the part about Saul? Still breathing out threats, being an enemy of God. Maybe you come face to face with that today. And you've been denying it for a long time. But today is the day of salvation for you. And you submit your life to Jesus. Is it Saul falling on his knees there and finally giving it all? I surrender all. Is it Saul simply being obedient to whatever he knew was next? Whatever he knew he was going to do in obedience to Jesus. Is it Saul just enduring by faith anything that comes your way? Maybe is it Saul finally getting involved in the life of the Christian community? I wonder, what is it? As you look at those four words, Lord, where is it today I need to be? Is it submission, obedience, endurance, community? Lord, how is it you want to change my life today? I hope that you'll spend a few moments talking to the Lord, hearing from Him. Lord, is it is it submission, obedience, endurance, community? Let's pray together. As you spend some time with the Lord, maybe one of those words resonates more than the others. And you see in this brief story of Saul and his conversion to the Lord, maybe you see yourself. You know, man, today, Lord, today, I know I need to submit. 
And you know the area of my life I'm talking about, Lord. Lord, today I just need to be obedient. I've been stubborn and I've been unwilling. But today, Lord, I need to be obedient. So walking out of here today, you may not show me the whole path, but I'll take the next step. Lord, you know the issue that I'm struggling with, the attacks that I've faced and I need to endure because, Lord, they may not go away. So, Lord, strengthen my faith. Help me to endure. Lord, I need some people in my life. I need some folks in community with me that will help me. Help me to grow. Help me to remain strong. Lord, I need people I can count on. God, would you show me who they are? Lord Jesus, I pray for the folks that are here this morning. And as we walk quickly through this scripture this morning, Lord, I I pray that you would make these words resonate with us. What is it, Lord, that we need to do in response? For those who need to submit or obey or to endure, to get involved in community here at church, help us, Lord. May we make that commitment to you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together if you would as we close with song.